Well, again, welcome to those who may be listening from afar. Uh, we are in a bit of a COVID-19 sermon series, and this is the third. I hope that you'll take opportunity to listen to the other two. It really sets up uh, even all the subsequent sermons. But, um, but, you know, we're asking this question. You know, we feel like we've sort of settled into the COVID reality a little bit, and, and I'm hearing more and more people begin to think about this question of God. You know, um, it's interesting, Lisa and I were talking on the way over, that we haven't heard so many people uh, publicly as much as we've heard in other instances praying and asking for prayer, at least in the public sort of sectors. And I wonder why that is, because I do hear more and more blogs and more and more people talking about where is God and, and what is he doing? And I suspect there's a little bit of fear to bring the God question up. Because with it comes all sorts of surmising and, and uh, even somewhat politicized sort of uh, reactions. I mean, to the question, where is God and what is he doing? I'm hearing several. On the one hand, I'll categorize them. I suspect uh, to be, you know, I suspect to be nice to God, if you will. Uh, the answer that seems to be emerging by some is, well, God isn't present in any of this. This is not his doing. God is a loving God. God is a kind God. God doesn't do this sort of stuff. He, he grieves, yes, but he's, he's not present in, with, and through these circumstances. Don't blame him. It's not his fault. It's kind of a wimpy response, I think, to be honest, and that it fundamentally undercuts God being God. Perhaps well-intended, of course, but it doesn't comfort us either, does it? To think that perhaps this is just some kind of fickle fate or some kind of serendipitous event of natural consequence somehow takes all purposefulness away from it but it also takes away any comfort that somehow it might be guided. Somehow it might be intentional in a manner that could prove itself in the end justifiable. Now, there are others on the other extreme. I suspect, at least I hope, out of concern for the would-be wake-up to the reality of God and even to move him them to the gospel through repentance and faith, I'll... I'll put that as their intention, whether it is or not, only God knows. But the answer would be something like this, whereas God, oh, God is absolutely present. He is present in this COVID-19 thing, and this is God's judgment against the world. And here is where it gets ugly, I suspect, for as then it inevitably leads to a rather selective selection of sins. The Friendly Atheist, which is a journal website, is quick to remind us what they are quick to perceive is the church saying right now. It quotes, Pastor says, quote, the, corona the coronavirus is God's punishment for legalized abortion and gay marriage. The New York Post quick to report about how evangelical Pastor claims the coronavirus is God's death angel to purge a lot of sin in relation to a godless communist government that persecutes Christians 
enforces abortions, calling it the death angel of God. We, of course, hear people invoke the images of the Revelations apocalyptic, the end times. It's the beginning of the end times, as if they forgot to read that it began the end times with the ascension of Christ. And on it could go. I think I've sufficiently opened up the can of worms, haven't I? So where really is God? And what is he doing? Our two readings from both the Old and New Testament scriptures will, I think, speak into this question as I'll give attention to both, both in the form of a lament, but also in great hope. But we need to pray. Would you pray with me? So God, would you come and fill our hearts with your presence? Would you speak into our minds and our hearts? As we believe, help us in our unbelief. As we struggle, help us to find that grace which is sufficient in our weakness. Lord, come. Fill us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in Psalms 46, it's a passage, as you know, if you've been reading the updates that I've been writing, the pastoral that I've been sending out, it's, it's been a passage that's been on my mind and I think a lot of our minds. As noted in a recent update, without a doubt, the, the coronavirus pandemic has in varying degrees and directions raised the questions that I am now speaking of. Our Old Testament reading today in Psalms 46 starts out with a very clear answer. How God is our refuge and strength. And here's the key, a very present, capitalized, present help in trouble. So on the one hand, it is one of the two core beliefs that, that is the basis of our assurance and comfort. It goes to say that belief. For we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Why? Because God is, in fact, present. That is how God's people have always responded to evil or to plagues and to such sufferings as this. Because God is present. You see how that's an interesting turn of logic. One logic will say reason seeking faith, putting the jurisdiction into our own hearts and minds as this we become the judge, the judicatory of God. One starts with the presupposition, there is no God until I can make sense of it. Until I can build a rational argument and understanding for the belief in God, but one that would begin with myself. What I can immediately experience and know. I am, and therefore, the Cartesian Revolution turned the whole search on its head and so many words to say in a kind of ultral, uber-humanistic way of thinking, I am at the center of the universe. I am the judge of truth and reality. I will say whether there is a God or not based on my experience. That is never even imagined in the Old or New Testament, except in the case of Adam and Eve in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where that was exactly the turn 
that preceded the, catars- the, the, the great enlightenment term there many centuries. That was the term that we call original sin. The other way of knowing is to reasonably believe that there is a God and yet that by faith with all of its mystery, then seeking understanding from God as to how then to understand and to process all of this. And so here we have this incredible statement by our, by our Psalms, how it is that God is, it just starts there. God is. And therefore, if God is, what is, makes sense is that God is God, being sovereign, and therefore we don't fear because God is directing all and whatsoever that comes to pass. In the Christian church, we call it decrees of God. He's decreed this in some manner. Because God never is absent. I think of Psalms 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I free from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, you are there. And he goes on and on and on, even to include darkness, metaphoric for suffering. Surely, even the darkness shall cover me and the light be about me as night. But, but even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, the darkness is light with you. You see, Faith is ultimately a gift of God, even if it can be made reasonable, it can't be reasoned perfectly. It certainly makes sense of reality that there's a God that he directed, whether the creation event through revolution or in spite of it, but he clearly is the creator of all things. He is clearly the God who directs all things, even without himself sinning. He decreed human will. He decreed the ability even to love God as to love him affectionately through choice. And yes, he decreed circumstances and consequences when we reject God. We call it original sin. So here we go. If God is present, then is he sovereign? Which is, again, like asking, is God really God? God is not absent, and therefore his divine attributes are not absent. And if there is a single attribute that is most essential to God being God, it is that God is sovereign, as predicated by the adjectives all, 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 all-powerful, all-knowing, all-presence. The omnis of God make him the sovereign of all. And so the psalm continues, come then, behold the works of God, of the Lord. And here's where we take comfort if we are not yet satisfied. Behold these works, how he has brought both desolations on the earth and makes desolations, he says it here, by wars to cease. As I mentioned in the letter, The same God who is our help in times of trouble is the God who decrees both earthly desolations and takes them away. And it raises the question again, the second question of our sermon. Okay, so God is present. He's sovereign. He decrees all things. 
then what, and this is where the expletives start to come, which I won't mention, what is God doing? The answer given by the psalmist will focus first and foremost on what God is doing relative to himself. And I want us to stop and put our head around that just for a short minute. It's almost stunning that I would say those words. What is God doing relative to himself? God seems always to get lost in the conversation as if he has no interest in what happens here on earth. As if he doesn't have something at stake here, but maybe, just maybe, he does. In other words, what is God doing? That there is something more central to the meaning of life than merely our own survival, maybe? Much less our own personal gratifications and comforts at a certain time of life? What is going on, maybe, that's bigger than even humanity. Now listen, I say that with great trepidation. It's not meant to be callous. In fact, if anything, God shows himself not to be callous. Don't forget the cross. Don't forget where we're coming and the grief and the crying. Remember, God cried at the death of his friend in Christ. God has great compassion and empathy. Perhaps, though, there's something greater in his love the near niceness. And it goes on. What is God doing? He says it very clear. Be still and know that I am God. Honestly, I can't remember in my lifetime when there has been more, apparently, at least more people humbled by our impotence. You know, it's not like a war even when we can find an enemy that's personal and direct our focus on that and say, this is the cause. It's that evil regime, it's evil this, or it's evil that. But when we come to a natural disaster, disaster like this, something that our greatest minds could not foresee, we were taken off guard. And when we come to a moment like that, Aren't we stilled? Be still. Know that I am God. And it seems like all these other things that are God-like in our lives, things we trust and expect to heal us, things we trust and expect to flourish us economically, things we trust and expect to be there for us, whether it's this social context or another or service, anything has been humbling, it's been the coronavirus epidemic, pandemic, hasn't it? It doesn't respect anybody. It doesn't respect anybody. We see royalty getting it, and we see those who are homeless getting it, and everyone in between. Honestly, doesn't it make us feel just a little bit less significant? Again, God, I say that, and I'm just fearful you'll misunderstand what I'm saying. But is that altogether a bad thing if God is God and our humanistic idols are not? 
Be still and know that I am God. The ultimate purpose of life itself, to exalt God, to glorify God. Is there some glory? In a short-sighted way, I would say no. How could God be glorified in suffering? But isn't there something maybe bigger going on? Maybe, just maybe, please don't turn the sermon off right now. If you did, you would miss the point. But I think we need to get in touch with this psalm. Be still. Put yourself aside just for a moment. Think, maybe God has something at stake here. And maybe what is at stake is that in the midst of our trouble, God would want to heal us and save us and manifest and exalt himself in his love and grace and compassion. It's interesting here that the traditional, the church has constantly tried to avoid historically, even as I go back into the other plagues of the 3rd and the 16th centuries, avoiding putting blame on any particular sin, as we'll see in our next passage. But it's quick to acknowledge and remember that when we, as a corporate or, or a collective people, reject God, we have rejected, which is nothing less than the very source of flourishing in life. There is a kind of curse that we have been brought to. And it's very clear that this is a curse that's related not to a particular sin, but to a, this original disposition. Romans 1 speaks of this very clearly about the wrath of God and how it's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, not selective. And what does he describe as this unrighteousness? He says it this way, because the unrighteousness is revealed in that what was, can be known about God was made plain enough to know that there is a God. Verse 19 in chapter 1. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. Think about that. Those things that are invisible, he says, he goes on to say, they have been made known through just a reasonable observation of what is visible. What is visible in nature, what is invisible in any, even the human anthropology, and, and what is it about humanity itself that images that there is a God, one with with real passion, if you mean by that, love and, and hope and dream and all of that other stuff. I mean, it's just so reasonable to believe as I look at nature, as I watch a beautiful opera, as I see humanity and their goodness as well. And I think, how would this come from, from just some kind of a survivalistic and mechanistic response, uh, you know, to stimulus kind of an evolution? I, it just makes me understand that whether through evolution or in spite of it, that's not the point, but there is a direct, something that directed this with purposeful intent. And so that's where it all goes. Be still and know that I am God. Because the passage in Romans will go on to say, so what did we do? Although we knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, which means foolish. Like, it isn't rational. To, not believe, to, to believe, not believe in God. And what did they do? They exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images resemble themselves. Again, we use the word humanism, if you want to use that word. But 
It's that narcissistic interning of, and it is revealed every time we come across a, process, a, a consequence of suffering and, and we just forget there is another being in this transaction. God, who is very God. And it's to his interest to be exalted. Now, lest you see that as a megalomaniac sort of disposition, if it's true that God is God and to be exalted, which is to mean to be revealed, to be known, to be exposed, and if God is, in fact, the source of life and good and flourishing and everything about life that would make anything good, then to exalt God is to exalt love, to exalt good, to exalt grace, to exalt mercy. It's the very things we want and yearn and desire that we would be revealed in just knowing God. There is no greater science, scientia, than to know God. And so the first point is, what is God doing? Well, according to the psalm, whatever he does, whether it is desolations, or even temporal salvations, it is to reveal himself, the author and the perfecter of abundant life. And he does so for our well-being. If we just be still, if we just listen and think and pray. I turn to Roman, uh, John 9, because here especially this becomes clear in the New Testament context. We come upon a man walking along and he saw a blind man from birth. Jesus, that is, saw a blind man from birth. Blind man from birth is a man that's hopeless. A man who's known nothing except his blindness. He had never seen. Clearly, he was clearly, he was already resolved that he would never see. He was hopeless about seeing. He was still, if you will, about his suffering. And so we have a picture of a blind man by birth. And the important thing is this, is that he is impotent and he knows it. Into such a context then enters the story. His questions, the, the disciples turn to Christ and they ask, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. <laughs> I mean, part of you, if you're not wondering here already, I mean, where are these guys? I mean, what kind of people are they? Here's a guy suffering blindness, and, and they're now wanting to attribute blame to him or his parents? So what were they thinking? I mean, it's hard to blame a, a man for what happened to him at birth. So looking for a scapegoat, they turned to the parents. But be a little bit more fair, it's not without precedent. In fact, in a context of the Old Testament especially, and this is where it's been way too complicated for me to spend much time on it, just, I hope you can trust me on this, but in a context there, there was this covenant that God had made with Israel, the nation state, even as the church was also part of that Israel nation state. So you could say that in the Old Testament, there was a nation and there was a church distinct but not separate at the time. 
And that's where a lot of confusion comes unless you go carefully through the Old Testament. At what point is a contract being made with the nation? At what point is a contract being made with the church? Paul makes reference of this in Romans 9. He says, not all Israel is Israel, don't you know? And he's referring then to the church that was a remnant or a subset of the Israel, the nation, which ceased to exist after this very short-term context that was outward and geopolitical in order to tutor, Paul says earlier in Romans, the world into the true spiritual realities. But in that context, it was true that, that, um, that, that the, the sins of the parents uh, could be then passed down in consequence to the children in a covenantal sense now, not in just a consequential sense. We all agree that the sins of a parent in a particular way might find their way into the children's lives. If I'm a, a whatever, uh, you know, sinful person, that sin, that self-same sin may very well begin in to show its consequences in the lives of my children. But they were asking a much deeper question here, as we'll see. You know, who's to blame? Is it the particular sins of this blind man or is it the particular sin of these parents? Notice what they didn't ask. Is this the curse of the world? That he is suffering in his own particular way as we suffer other things in particular ways? It's not that kind of nuanced of a question. It's truly the question. What particular sin led to this particular man's blindness? And the answer is as true today as it was then. He says, neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Clearly the implication is that they were thinking that they could scapegoat it. I've already mentioned in the introduction how we're seeing, sadly, the same question today being asked by some. A kind of legalism that's being misrepresented from the Old Testament horribly or misappropriating even the apocalyptic visions of revelations. Calvin, the great reformer, saw the same thing in his day during his fight with the plague. Would you believe that? What goes around comes around? Here's what he said with a bit of a irony, I guess. He says, it isn't it interesting while every man is ready to censure others with extreme bitterness, there are few who apply to themselves, as they ought to, the same severity. For if my brother meets with adversity, I instantly acknowledge the judgment of God, but if God chastises me with a heavier stroke, I merely wink my eye. I'm just amazed at the continuity of, of life, honestly. As you know, I've been looking and reading um, some history, some church history on, on the way in which the church encountered the plagues of their millennias, and it's incredible, almost identical, the way the church oftentimes responded consistently within an orthodox theology, when they did at least. Clearly, the implication is his. Neither his man nor his parents sin. Hey, guys, it's a lot bigger than that. Something bigger is going on. And so what is it? 
And here's his answer. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that, purpose clause, so that God's works might be revealed in him. Another way of saying that God might be exalted through his works. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. For night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Oh boy, that is so pregnant and packed. But notice, first of all, there's a purposefulness. Don't let anyone tell you that there's any such thing in the economy of God as purposeless anything. God is intentional. God is purposeful. And the so that clause makes it clear that his ultimate purpose is to be revealed through it, whatever it is. We can be assured that is his purpose. And then he goes on verse 4 and says, we must work the work of him who sent me. Now what he's saying there, while there is day, because night is coming. Now what is he saying here? He's thinking about how we're to understand this life and particularly the days that we live in in this life called in Scripture the last days, days beginning with the ascension, ending with the return of Christ, where this heaven, this self-same heaven and earth will be recreated or revived or refreshed, however you want to describe it, into the perfect land flowing with milk and honey that was always promised, and how we, the self-same bodies of people, will be raised from the dead to walk on this self-same earth, and everything will be glorifying to God as the God who revealed himself in, with, and through the gospel of Jesus Christ as the Savior of all who have once sinned by rejecting God. But in his great mercy, in spite of that rejection, gave his only beloved son that he might, what? Die for us. That he might restore us to himself, being reconciled to God. You see, it's the incredible statement. But here's the thing. It totally changes the way you think about this life. As this life, at best, is a penultimate life. It's a life in preparation for another life, the one that's eternal, the one that compared to this life makes this life almost insignificant, only when compared to it, because it's very significant otherwise. And so we hear this incredible statement. Notice then a little bit more about what he's saying. Again, there is no such thing as any utterless, pointless suffering. It all has purpose. And the first observation is the purpose of the blind man's suffering was related to the incarnational context of Christ 2,000 years ago. For what we will see is that Christ will heal him. I'm going to really read, go short and, and, and summarize it, but what does he do? He takes mud and he water and he puts it on his eyes and everybody's going, woo, gross. No, it is meant to remind you that Christ has come to recreate the world. It's the same images from dust and blowing life, and all of this water, the water of living waters, it's this image of creation. Yet again, a new creation. 
This is so cool. Read it in the context of the scripture and you'll see what he's saying when he takes mud and water and spit and puts it on the eyes and the man's sight is restored, which is the first point that God's works might reveal, be revealed in him. It was a sign, in other words. That's the most common word to describe the New Testament miracles in the Gospels. It was a sign, which means that it's not the end point. It's not the end game. The purpose of the miracle is not to exalt the miracle. The purpose of the miracle is to exalt the one who is revealed through the miracle to be none other than God, the creator of the world. John begins his gospel, if you don't remember, in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh. But this word is described as the one who created all things in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. This is so powerful. Don't please miss it. The first purpose is to reveal Jesus Christ as truly God in flesh appearing. That we might trust him and his purposes. The second purpose is revealed in verse 4. And what's particularly interesting here in the second observation is, is how it is that we now, the first one was directing us to Jesus Christ, him who worked the miracle. Now there is a commission that we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Notice the we. Christ involves us, his disciples, and those who are in succession to his disciples through the church. Christ involves us in this amazing revelation of God. I've told you how in previous pandemics, how the church... And the ones, at least, that I've been studying, I can't pretend to know everyone. Maybe John here could tell me there's one where it didn't. But the church came out of it with great growth and great witness and great power. In the 3rd and 4th century, both there and in the 16th century, we see how the church, with its bedrock doctrines of life after death and the fear of death being the sting of that fear being taken away by their hope and belief in Jesus Christ, how they had become still and known that God is God, these purposeful, they became salt and light, what I talked about in our first sermon, and how in doing that, the world actually believed in Jesus Christ. They believed in them not because Christians were all getting saved. They believed in him because Christians were willing to take up their cross and suffer with Christ in saving those who were hurt and hurting. When the world was abandoning even their young and their relatives and not burying those who were dead, it was the Christians who go out into the fields and take up the, the infants and would bury even the pagan people's dead as love for the world. Jesus here is saying that how it is that we now will, by our reaction to our suffering times, manifest the authenticity and the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world would say, this has got to be real because it's not what you would expect when it brings harm upon the very ones that believe it and when they put themselves in harm's way. Now this results in a lot of soul-searching, I know. 
But remember John 14, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And in fact, will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. On the one hand, we see how it was that that God uses suffering now to direct us to that greater hope of heaven itself through Jesus Christ. That's observation one in summary. Secondly, the purposefulness is revealed in that we now have opportunity to take up our cross and to follow after Christ, wherein the world will see the authenticity of Christ in our love one for another and our love for the world. I'll share about this in our, in our things, but we've created a mercy homepage that's going to be part of that COVID-19 homepage that we've, we've put on there. And in that, we're going to be putting in opportunities for mercy, both within our church and also in our city. We're looking at, at cooperating with BOH, Bridges of Hope, a, a collaborative of churches that we participate with, and in helping the vertical church distribute food to, the, to those who are without food. And there's some things brewing right now. We've been trying, you know, all of our churches have been collectively trying to get ourselves online for worship, and then we've been trying to get a collective virtual church built, but this week we're going to be focusing a lot on trying to get up and running the mercy in the context for that. Remember the sermon, the way in which God purposes this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ could be more exposed and transparent. And wouldn't that be a good thing? Because this life, as remember Luther reminded us, and as C.S. Lewis reminded us last week, we've always faced death. Death has always been in front of us. And in Lewis's terms, most of us in horrific ways, probably. COVID-19 hasn't changed anything in that regard. It is a moment, though, of extreme anxiety and fear understandably, for our temporal concerns. And here we have this incredible mandate, we, that we will enter with Christ as a sign to something greater that is our hope and to one who is the greatest, who is our hope. C.S. Lewis, as he so often can, reflects it this way. Beyond all doubt, God's idea of goodness differs from ours. By the goodness of God, we mean nowadays almost exclusively his kindness. What would really satisfy us would be a God who said of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter so long as it makes you happy? Kindness merely as such cares not whether its object becomes good or bad, provided only that it escapes suffering. It is for people whom we care nothing about that we would demand happiness on any terms. If God is love, he is by definition something more than mere kindness. And it appears from all records, I can hear him saying this with tongue in cheek a little bit, I can, it appears from all records that he has paid us the intolerable compliment, thank you very much God, tongue in cheek, of loving us in the deepest, most tragic, most inexorable sense. I love the way you said that. It is tragic. It is tragic. We always lament curse and sin. We always lament brokenness and dying and suffering and sickness. No one in their right mind but a sociopath could possibly not mourn, deeply mourn the hurt and the pain that we must suffer. And yet, 
We do so not as others. We do so with hope. You see, the problem of reconciling human suffering, says Lewis, with the existence of God who loves is only insoluble so long as we attach a very trivial meaning to the word love and look on things as if we, man, were the center of them. This whole sermon has been meant to explicate that. When we turn inward, when we become the center of the universe, there is no explanation for this that will satisfy you. When we believe in God, trust that he is intentional and purposeful. We see a purpose which is really and truly a worthy purpose, a purpose to reveal himself, which we understand who God is, is the source of true abundant life and flourishing. And to reveal that there is a story, a story that's true, that begun in Jesus Christ, a story wherein we can expect a kind of healing that will never, ever await yet another plague. That's just almost incredible to think about. Every war seems to beget another war. Every disease, whether mastered medically, seems to beget another disease. We just keep thinking somehow that our ziggurat building, those towers into heaven that we put our hope and trust in in our human ingenuity, we just keep thinking we can overcome all this. It is futile to think that way, isn't it? We can bring temporary relief to be sure. As one of my doctor friends here in this church always reminds me, I only uh, delay the inevitable. Jesus Christ is your answer. It's to turn away from the kind of self-absorption that would reject him as our ultimate provider and caregiver. It's to turn to him. It's to ask for faith. God, give me the gift of faith. It's to go to Scripture, to see that faith get grounded more and more by going to church, by participating in a church. To see it lived out in people's lives who suffer and to see it observed in our congregations we have over the years. People who suffer but who find great hope and courage and strength in times of need where they have vindicated the truth that God is ever-present, our refuge. To see it is to vindicate it, to make it more true to us. You can't grow apart from that in a body of Christ. It's to turn away from self-hope, basically, and put our hope on Christ. That's the purpose, the ultimate purpose of all of this. I can say that assuredly.